And we're back, uh, ladies and gentlemen, on the Fleet Matthews Radio Show. Thank you for tuning in wherever you are around the world. We've got him back for part three, ladies and gentlemen, one of the world's, I, you know, some people would say just the country, but I am certain that one of the world's greatest leading decision-making scientists is with me today, Dr. Gleb Sapersky, uh, who is an expert on decision-making science and emotional and social intelligence. Uh, he's also the assistant professor at the Decision Sciences Collaborative uh, and History Department at Ohio State University, and he's back with us today on, as I said, his third installment dedicated to his book, Truth Seekers Handbook, A Science-Based Guide. Welcome back, Dr. Gleb Sapersky. Thanks so much, Philippe. It's a pleasure to be back on with you for the third part of the show, and I appreciate your kind introduction. Absolutely, absolutely. So, ladies and gentlemen, as you know, I, 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 the people that I have interviewed over the last, oh, I don't know, 20, 25, 30 years, one of the things that I guess is that differentiates me from some of the other uh, producers and shows is I actually read the people's books. Um, so I actually delve into it and, 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 and look at the efficacy and, and try to apply the principles. And uh, this book has not only changed my life, it's changed how I uh, will work and be throughout my life. It's giving me a new uh, a level of tools, a system of tools, a blueprint, if you will, uh, that I can apply not just in my business, uh, but in every, every area of my life, relationships, my health, uh, 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 you know, my academia, whatever, writing my next book, whatever it is, this guy has actually uh, produced uh, uh, a system of thinking uh, based on all of these various different biases and, 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 and uh, multiple attribute, uh, attribute theory uh, that we're going to delve into. And it's absolutely fantastic. So that being said, uh, Dr. Sapersky, um, I've got a series of questions for you, obviously. So let's, let's, you know, dig into it, okay? Of course. And thanks so much for uh, your thoughtful and kind words about um, my approach. I, what I want to do is help people make better decisions because decisions are the basis of everything we do in life. And we don't get training in how to make better decisions. We get training in you know, how to communicate better. We can get training in how to learn various subjects, but not in decision-making. And it's such a sad thing that we don't get training in that. And that's just what I want to help people do, make better decisions in all areas of their lives. You're absolutely right. And I'm just thinking about all of the people who are suffering from unnecessary pain and disappointment. Mm -hmm. Uh, that Absolutely. they don't even know uh, with almost in a blink of an eye of applying these principles and understanding system one and system two uh, aspects of the brain, which I want you to go into, that their lives can literally be transformed. You can go to every self-help seminar. You can watch Oprah until you're blue in the face and go blind. And if you're not applying those techniques or whatever it is uh, from a system two uh, intentional perspective, you're just kind of running to stand still, and you're in this uh, inevitable recurring chain of pain. So let's first go back, and, and for the people who might, who might not uh, uh, listen to part one and two of this series, could you define and explain what system one thinking is versus system two thinking? Of course. So we have recent research in behavioral science has rejected Freud's idea that we are have a separate id and a separate uh, super id and so on recent research shows that instead our system of thinking is divided our thinking is divided into two systems 
System one, which I like to call the autopilot system, is our gut reactions, our instincts, our intuitions. It's the thing that drives us to have a second piece of chocolate cake and a third piece of chocolate cake when we really know we don't need to have a second piece of chocolate cake. So that's kind of, it can be harmful. It also drives, it also gets us to jump out of the way of a moving car, which is very helpful. And so that's the autopilot system. Now the autopilot system has been evolved from the savanna. In the savanna, we definitely want to eat all the sugar we can get our hands on because, you know, the savanna environment, you know, thousands and thousands of years ago, the, the people who ate the most sugar, they're the ones who survived, as well as the ones who got out of the way of, you know, saber-toothed tigers and so on. So right now in the modern world, we still want to get out of the way of the saber-toothed tigers, that's the cars, but we don't want to eat all the sugars. So that's a very simple and basic way of conveying that our mind is not adapted for the modern world. This gut reaction, this autopilot system is not well adapted for the modern world. And there are going to be a whole series of situations that don't look like the Savannah world, like the you know Twinkies available in the store. We can have all the Twinkies we want, unlike in the Savannah, and that we're going to be intuitively pulled to make the bad decisions in those areas. And that's our gut intuitions, that are our gut reactions. You know, people who tell you to go with your gut, just don't, don't, don't trust those people. That's not a good way to go because your gut will lead you wrong in a whole series of situations. Now, there are plenty of situations when it will lead you in the right direction, situations that align with the savanna environment, like getting out of the way of a moving car, or if you know somebody well and you've worked with them for a long time and you see that their behavior is off somehow, then you can know that, okay, there's likely something to be worried about or suspicious or concerned. Because in a tribal environment, you know your tribal members for a long time, and you know when they're behaving in a problematic way. Mm-hmm. But if you, in our modern world, we work with so many people who aren't part of our small in-group that we've collaborated with for a long time, and our gut reactions will just be off with those people. So that's the, you know, that's the promise and the tension and the problems of system one autopilot thinking. Fortunately. We have a second system of thinking, the intentional system, system two. The intentional system is our logical, reasonable system. It's the system where that uh, we use to do abstract thought, to do math, to solve complex problems. It's the system we use to restrain ourselves from taking that second piece of chocolate cake. It's a system that we use when we feel uh, certain negative feelings about someone that are undue, unwarranted. It's the system that we use to suppress and move away those feelings. So if we don't go with our gut, we can use that system too, the intentional system, to figure out when are the situations in our modern world that don't look like the savannah environment? What are the different situations? And we can direct ourselves to make wise decisions that will help us reach our goals in those situations. You know, to give you an example of how people suffer, the, in 2008, imagine buying, you know, yourself being, so, you know, buying a home. Lots of people thought that home prices would just keep going up and up and up. And you know what? They went with their guts. That was their intuition talking to them. And they bought a house. And look what happened. The housing market crashed and it nearly, you know, led to the Great Recession because of all those people making those decisions. 
and even right now we have a number of uh, organizations uh, that make bad decisions in their business. Uh, what is the Amer what is the bank that uh, made the bad decision to let their salespeople write a lot of check accounts? Uh, Wells Fargo, I think, mm -hmm. uh, that mm -hmm. is in the news. So they made really bad decisions. So that's one company that made really bad decisions. They went with their guts. They're like, oh, nothing will happen. Well, look what happened. Lots of bad decisions. So that's a big problem in our decision-making, of course, in politics as well, in all areas of our lives. So we need to, in order to avoid the suffering that Philip was talking about in the beginning of the show, we need to look and use our intentional system to correct the errors of our gut intuitions. Sometimes our gut is right, sometimes our gut is wrong, and we need to use the intentional system to correct it when it's wrong. Absolutely incredible. Um, and, and very incredible that uh, Freud was, was, ha, has now been considered debunked, uh, if you will, uh, that, that there's a new model uh, of, of, of the way the brain works, uh, and that is, you know, extremely powerful. Of course, we all know the evolution of, of, uh, of, of uh, you know, doctors and, 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 and psychology moves very, very slow. But it's just so awesome to be in a day and a time uh, when we can actually say, yeah, we've upgraded, uh, we've done the test, we've, run, we've, we've, we've done the case studies. And this is why I love your book so much. It's, it's replete with case studies. And, and, and if you have a, the uh, Kindle version, the digital version, it's replete with uh, uh, case studies, but also links uh, to those studies. Uh, so it's not... Uh, there's no hyperbole in this book. It's all factual. It's all research. It's all cited. And speaking of that, I want to talk about, um, is it true, you wrote about this in the book, is it true that there's research on a variety of mental states such as happiness that suggests about half of our mental patterns are determined by our genes and the other half is determined by our, our environment and experience? Walk us through that, if you could. Sure, of course. So people... Uh, are varied. Some people are naturally more optimistic, some people are naturally more pessimistic, some people are naturally more happy, and some people are less happy. And some people are more angry, and some people are less angry. A lot of this comes from our biology. So our parents determine our, a lot of our genes. They, there can be genes that code for happiness, for depression, for anxiety, and so on. Just as there are genes that code for blue hair, blonde hair, strong physique, weak physique, the mind is an organ, just like any other body part is an organ. And all of these manifestations of our personality are in part coded by the proteins and you know, the, the sperm and the egg that uh, make us who we are. That's one component of it. So that's about 50% of things are coded by our genes. About 50% of things are coded by our environment. Now, you can imagine, for example, two people, one who, uh, uh, two people, one of whom engages in bodybuilding and another of whom doesn't. Now, they may start with the same basic physique before they engage in bodybuilding, but the person who starts to engage in bodybuilding is going to develop much more strong physique and powerful physique than the person who doesn't engage in bodybuilding. Mm -hmm. In the same way, if you choose to engage in mental training of various sorts, 
like I talk about in the Truth Seekers Handbook of Science-Based Guides, has a lot of strategies for that. You can have a brain that will have a physique like a bodybuilder, and you'll be able to make much better decisions and have much less suffering, much greater happiness, much more ability to achieve whatever goals you set off in life to achieve if you engage in mental training as opposed to the person who doesn't engage in mental training. You, know, you can sit on the couch and be a couch potato, or you can go and do exercises. It's your choice. You can do the same thing with your mind. Your mind is an organ, just like anything else. You can wow. be a mind, you know, couch potato for the mind, or you don't have to be a couch potato for the mind, and you can actually make, be, you know, work, work out your mind. And it's up to you. It's up to every one of us what we choose to do and how we choose to use that 50% of our abilities that can actually be improved. Again, you know, if you are, have a very slight and small physique, you will likely never be a bodybuilder, but you will be able to be much stronger than that, much stronger than if you don't work out. So again, this is partially determined by your genes. Your ability to make decisions is partially determined by your genes. Your ability to have your certain level of happiness is partially determined by your genes. But if 50% of it is not, imagine how much better you can be compared to the person you were before. That's incredible. You know, um, I, I don't know if you tap into the science of epigenetics, but when you're talking about uh, genes, when you're talking about environment, uh, there's a, there's a uh, science that, you know, of, of, of genetic memory uh, that is pretty fascinating that we come with some presets that actually, you know, uh, turn on and turn off certain gene expressions or DNA expressions. And, and um, when we look at uh, whatever our, you know, proclivities are, uh, our personalities are, we, we sometimes sit up and say, well, that's just the way uh, they are, that's just the way I am, and I can't really do anything about it. And actually, we now know that's not true. We can actually change by changing our decisions and how we approach decision uh, theory and apply it, we literally alter our DNA and make better uh, humans, if you will, and particularly even better offspring. Mm -hmm. Yes, so we can definitely change the way we, uh, which genes we express or not through exercising our minds or our bodies. Again, this is all, these are all organs and we can choose how and whether to exercise these organs. And absolutely right. This is an important component of what we mean when we, what I, what I mean, what scholars mean when they say 50% is determined by your genes, 50% is determined by the environment and your activities. So is denial, uh, you know, you, you, you hear people say all the time, well, they're in Egypt, they're in denial. Uh, denial, is that a system one level of thinking? Because it's just something that, you know, there are some people that just won't see logic, proof, and we talk about this. Uh, throughout the book, uh, of, uh, you know, the illusory, the illusory effect and various different types of biases. So would, would, would you say denial would be part of a, a would, would be located in a system one uh, level or way of thinking? Absolutely. So denial, to define denial, denial is when we refuse to recognize facts about reality, whether it's in business and politics and personal life. I mean, how many people get married and then divorce? Uh, you know, that's huge partially due to people not recognizing reality. We already talked about business, uh, in business people not recognizing reality. In fact, 
there was a study by Leadership IQ, which found that of all the CEOs who are forced out, uh, over 20% are forced out because of denialism, because they fail to recognize negative facts about the company's performance. That's uh, you know, in business. And of course, in politics, a lot of people believe falsehoods, sharing fake mm-hmm. news and so on. So this is something that encompasses all areas of life. Now, why does denial happen is the question I'm often asked. Well, denial happens because we, our gut reactions, are often steering us away from recognizing uncomfortable truths. We as human beings don't have a good way of distinguishing between what feels uncomfortable and what is not true, or what feels comfortable and what is true. Unfortunately, because we don't have any training in determining, we don't, the schools aren't teaching this, they don't teach how to manage our emotions and intuition and to recognize that just because something feels uncomfortable doesn't mean it's not true. And just because something feels comfortable doesn't mean it's true. So people very often, very, very often make this basic mistake. They feel, oh, this doesn't make me feel comfortable. I don't like it. Therefore, it must not be true. Or this makes me feel comfortable. I like it. This and this must be true. And that's a fundamental reason for denialism, for denial of reality. So in order to address that, I talk about it in this book, there are a number of techniques that you can use to train yourself to separate those two feelings. When you see uncomfortable truths about your personal life, your spouse, your friends, your community, you know, your church or faith or value or secular group, let's say, if you're secular, your uh, club, your business, your you know, nonprofit, if you're nonprofit, your political leadership, you know, whether you, uh, whatever political leader you support, if uh, she or he starts saying things that are uncomfortable for you or inaccurate, you know, something like that. When, the, when you need to recognize that these, there's a difference between feelings of discomfort, oh, I don't feel comfortable about this, and whether that is true or not. So just because your political leader is being accused of something unsavory doesn't mean that the accusation is false. Just because someone you like in the organization, in your business, um, let's say if they are doing something that you think is problematic, doesn't mean, or they're accused of doing something that you think is problematic, doesn't mean that uh, the accusation is false. And of course, the same thing applies in your personal life, in your community life, and so on. So there's, it's really important to differentiate those two things, to be able to accept information as, okay, this is information I would prefer if this information wasn't true, separate from, is this information actually true or not? <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You say in the this is great. You say in the book um, it's very difficult uh, to improve one's intelligence level, but it's quite simple mm-hmm. to improve one's rationality. Can you can you explain that and unpack that a little bit? Absolutely. So the when I talk about uh, exercising the mind muscles, I talk about rationality. I don't talk about intelligence. Intelligence research shows it's incredibly difficult to change our basic level of intelligence. It's kind of like, um, if you compare it to the body's organs, it's kind of like eyesight. You can't really improve your eyesight or hearing in any particular way. I mean, you can, but it's really hard to do. Uh, So it's just not something that's going to be changeable. It's not like a muscle. Intelligence in this sense is not really like a muscle. 
it's not something that change. Intelligence refers to how quickly you can uh, think about things and solve problems. That's not really changeable in easy ways. So it's really best to avoid focusing our time and efforts on changing our intelligence. What, what we can easily, quickly change very effectively is another quality, which is called rationality. Rationality is the ability to evaluate reality clearly, to make good decisions that reach our goals. That's the very natural version of what rationality refers to. Again, evaluating reality clearly to make good decisions that help us reach our goals. You can learn, if you, uh, if you develop the ability to differentiate between feelings of, I prefer this to not be true, and whether this is actually true or not, that's a very fundamental aspect of rationality. And that's very something that we, people can change with one training. And there's actually research studies showing that people after one training can substantially improve their level of rationality, their level of ability to evaluate the accuracy of the world around them. And this training persists if it's a good, effective training. So the effect persists for a while afterward. And we, you know, for at least several months, we haven't tested it further. So the effect persists. So if you go to a training on this topic, this is something that you can definitely improve. And then, of course, so evaluating reality clearly, then making good decisions. People aren't taught how to make good decisions. You know, something that we often don't do is compare variables. You know, what are all the criteria for your decision making? So what would make you make one decision versus another? What weight, what value do you place in these criteria? And people don't think about these things. They are not taught to think about it in these sorts of terms. But if you evaluate all your criteria, so let's say um, you're making, let's say you're deciding whether to change your, and you're, you know, think, oh, in my current job, I'm not getting paid as well, but you know, I have a comfortable social environment, but my boss is kind of mean. So those are kind of your three criteria: how much you're paid, uh, the attitude of your boss, and your current social environment. Then you can look at a potential new job or two new jobs and evaluate them. How much will they pay you? How much will your boss be like? What is your social environment going to be like in this new organization? And then how important each of these three things is to you. You can put numbers on them, and then you can easily calculate which of these three opportunities is going to best match your needs. That's a very easy decision-making strategy that we're simply not taught and people will be making such better decisions if they were simply applying this quick and easy strategy. I talk about it in much more detail in the book and how you apply it to more complex things. So this is another easy thing to do. Absolutely fascinating. And the fact that only in one training this can, this can happen. You know, a lot of people think, well, you know, how do I have to go back to school to learn this? Do I have to become a PhD candidate to, to be able to rationally think? No, you can actually do it in in, in one session, uh, uh, mm -hmm. and I would even preface to say, uh, depending upon your learning curve, you could probably just get the True Seekers Handbook and you will have it. And uh, yeah, and there's a lot the of summarizes The True Seekers yeah. Handbook summarizes the kind of trainings that should be given. You know, it's essentially an online ver it's an in in print version of uh, trainings that you can be given. Mm -hmm. you, you know, the thing I, I appreciate about uh, this work that you are doing is that, for the most part, this has only been privy to uh, 
the, the top 1% and mostly in business. Uh, this really hasn't been given to the lay people, if you will, uh, to the general, general population. This is a game changer and levels the playing field. Would you, would you agree with that? This is absolutely the case. I mean, uh, I consult on this for organizations that pay me several hundred dollars an hour to do this and pay me $5,000 to speak uh, for, for them in organizational context. And I was doing this for a while before I decided that, you know, this knowledge, I just wouldn't feel good about keeping it to this context, to the context of businesses and, you know, that pay me a lot of money and not being able to be shared with the layperson. That's why about four years ago, I co-founded the nonprofit organization called Intentional Insights at intentionalinsights.org to popularize the research on behavioral science. And this is kind of the latest cutting edge research on behavioral science. So a professor in this field, decision scientist collaborative, and evaluating how groups and institutions make decisions in historical and, and contemporary contexts and business politics, other areas. And I am done the research. And so there are other people like me who care about this stuff, who join the organization, and they want to popularize it. They wanted to make it available to a broad audience. And so that's when I started writing for Scientific American, Time, Newsweek, and so on about these topics. And that's what I put out the book about, summarizing a lot of the articles that I've written together with some new content into a cohesive course of study, essentially, that mm -hmm. applies to all areas of life. And you, when, as you read it, you can see how it applies with specific clear examples that so can apply to everyday life that, you know, you don't need to pay me several hundred dollars for coaching or consulting or, you know, pay me several thousand dollars to go speak somewhere. This is something that you can pick up in your bookstore on uh, Amazon it's on, and it's available there and you will have these benefits. And that's what I want to bring to people. Well, I tell you, I downloaded this book on, you know, I bought the Kindle and I um, uh, connected it. Of course, my Kindle is connected to Goodreads. And so uh, it's a, there, there's a section in Goodreads that says, this book has been completed by Philippe Shock Matthews. cover <laughs> to cover. I completed this one, ladies and gentlemen. Some books I go through and I don't, I might leave a chapter or two out. This one, start to finish. Um, let's get into some of the biases because that was one of the big things for me when I first uh, mm -hmm. heard about you and reached out to you, um, those critical thinking errors that it just, it, it fascinated me. And of course, what, 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 what you're going to get uh, family, and when I say family, I'm talking to the audience, what you're going to get family when you read this work and delve into this work is you are inevitably going to see yourself in the data. That's what I think is really cool, is that this is not something that's going to go over your head. This is something that's going to go completely in your mind and in your heart, and you're going to feel it. You're going to say, oh, that's what I have done. Or you'll be able to immediately recognize one of these attributes or biases in your family members, in your children, in your work, in other people. And uh, from that moment, you'll never be the same because you'll now begin to see, oh, that's why I, people might say certain things about me or I might feel a particular way about myself or others. You will see yourself in the data. So, and that was really fascinating to me because that's what happened to me. I just, I saw myself in the data. 
And I said, oh, my God, this is not going to be a, a one-time interview. And this was when we, well, you know, before you had your book. And when you had the book and I went through it, I said, okay, now this just can't happen in one damn radio show. We're going to have to have a series uh, on this thing. Um, so let's get into some of the biases and some of the um, the, the the critical thinking errors uh, that, that uh, you list uh, in the book. So uh, there is one called the false consensus effect. Um, mm -hmm. Walk us through that. Sure. So the false consensus effect relates to us thinking that other people think the same way that we do, especially people who are close to us. So again, we can go to the example of marriages and people getting divorced. Very often, people think that their spouses think have the same opinions about everything that they have opinions about. In reality, that's, a, that's an error. That's a false evaluation of reality. That's not what actually happens. That's a, and that's why it's called the false consensus effect. Our spouses have a lot of different opinions. We, we'd be surprised if you look at uh, the opinions of spouses and what kind of differences they have. And that's, you know, spouses, mothers, children, uh, relatives, brothers, sisters, close friends. We just tend not to talk about these differences. We tend to assume that other people have the same opinions. You know, you talk to your coworkers, talk to anyone who you think you share opinions with, and you'll see that they're really much more different than you assume they are. And so that really negatively impacts our society as well, because we have certain presumptions about what other people in our society think, and we tend to greatly overestimate the extent to which other people share our opinions. And this goes to politics, this goes to business, this goes to faith, and so on. So we greatly tend to overestimate the extent to which other people share our opinions. And if we talk about faith, we actually, there's interesting studies that show that people think that God shares their whole opinion set. So whatever mm -hmm. their opinion set, however different they are, they think that God shares all of their opinions. Mm -hmm. You know, obviously that's not going to be the case. God is not going to share everybody's opinions. <laughs> and that's another example of the false consensus. That's that another example great. of the false, yeah. false, yep. So it applies in all areas of our lives, and it's really dangerous when we overestimate the extent to which other people share our opinions, because again, that's what causes marriages to fall apart. Yeah. That's what causes business relationships to fall apart. That's what caused the, you know, one, one of the causes of the housing crisis, because people thought that other people would think that housing prices should keep going up and they'll be buying their homes you know, when, because other people will keep inflating the price over time. Uh, that's the cause of market bubbles. So this is a really dangerous, dangerous price. Of course, in politics, you know, people yeah, you think know, that their candidates will always get elected. Yep. And, so, and, and you, you think, too, that uh, this might be a little archaic, but, you know, we always hear that term, you know, don't assume. Uh, mm -hmm. Because <laughs> assume makes an ass of you and me. That's the old uh, yeah. adage there. But... Uh, consensus, the, the false consensus effect is uh, those assumptions uh, that, that uh, everybody yes. thinks the way we do. Yeah, wow. Mm -hmm. Wow, that's, that's cool. Okay, fundamental attribute error uh, or correspondence bias. What is that? So it's a really interesting one. So we tend to ascribe to ourselves, attribute to ourselves, 
intentions that go uh, that are when we think about negative things that we do. We do them because of external environments. You know, let's say we're driving along in a car and we uh, cut somebody off, and we think, okay, you know, I just completely didn't see the person. You know, she was in my blind spot. Oops, you know, not my fault, but you know, well, okay. We see somebody else driving along, and then they cut us off, and we're like, oh, that jerk. How could she, you know, mm -hmm. how could she cut me off, you know? That's a very basic example of where we attribute to ourselves circumstantially, you know, that we do things because of our circumstances, external environment. You know, we didn't see it. We're not a jerk. Where you, you know, we don't, we're not the ones with the problem. So we tend to assume the best about ourselves, and we tend to assume the worst about others when they do things we don't like. We tend to assume not that they, you know, cut us off because they didn't see us or because, you know, they have a medical emergency that they're rushing to the hospital, you know, or something like that. We tend to assume that they did it because they're richer. That's a kind of very basic presumption. Same thing happens in, let's say, business interactions. Uh, somebody doesn't, you know, if you don't deliver a contract, you know, you make a contract, you don't deliver something on time, you're like, oh, man, you know, uh, my supplier was late, you know, it's not my fault, whatever. Mm -hmm. uh, so you kind of assume that about yourself and you say, you know, sorry, you know, uh, I it, it was outside of my control. So, your supplier. When the other guy doesn't deliver something to your business, it's like, oh, that jerk, you know, he promised and, you know, he didn't deliver the thing, I'm going to sue him, you know. <laughs> That's the same thing. You assume the best about yourself and the worst about others and you assume that everything uh, that goes wrong with you is because of factors outside of your control and everything that goes wrong with other people is because of their personality, because they are jerks. Now, this relates to another, another really important bias called the planning fallacy. The planning fallacy is where we tend to think everything will go perfectly. Our plans will all go perfectly. So really interesting study of how students were asked, you know, how long would it take you to uh, complete this paper? Uh, so there were two students from the same class, uh, not two students, two groups of students from the same class, and they had a paper due. And one group of students was asked, how long would it take you to complete this paper uh, under perfect circumstances? You know, if everything went right, if everything went perfectly, like you know, swimmingly, uh, and they could succeed. There was a group of students from the same class who were asked, you know, how, how long do you anticipate this paper will take you to complete? And they answered six weeks. <laughs> wow. Now, you know, what's the likelihood that life will go perfectly for anyone? Mm -hmm. it, it's nearly zero. <laughs> right. you know, your computer will break down, you'll get sick, your dog will eat your homework, you know, whatever, you want to go out for a party, something like that, you know, and that's students, right? How likely is that our life will go perfectly the way that we will lead our life. It's almost zero. It's very, very small that our life will go perfectly. Now, we might get sick. You know, um, our spouse might get in trouble somewhere. We need to help our spouse or friend. You know, we need to stay up and talk to our friend until late. You know, my friend had a baby recently, so I was helping her. I am helping her with her baby, and that's taking more energy and time than I would otherwise spend, and, and so on. So. We tend to, this is the, how the planning fallacy and the fundamental attribution error combine in very uh, harmful ways. We, you know, if we think of the supplier, 
didn't deliver something, therefore it's not our fault, that means we're falling into planning fallacy. We assumed that the supplier would deliver everything we needed. We assumed okay. that there were no other problems that uh, would creep up. And so we make contracts in our business that are based on faulty assumptions, that are based on planning fallacy. They're based on the idea that everything will go perfectly. What's the likelihood, if you actually think about it, that everything will go perfectly in your business? I mean, that's almost zero for any sort of business. You know, no, it's not going to go perfectly. What's the likelihood that uh, applying it to every to other areas? What's the likelihood that everything will go perfectly in your personal life? Almost zero. Social life, political life, whatever life you think, civic engagement. But we tend to assume that everything will go perfectly. And so we tend to not put blame on ourselves when we make faulty assumptions about perfect things going perfectly when we really do deserve some blame because we didn't incorporate some slack time uh, and some other resources that uh, we should have incorporated if we're aware of the planning fallacy. You know, being aware of the planning fallacy will cause us to incorporate more time and financial resources, whatever resources you need into any contract you do, into any sort of your political engagement, into your civic life, personal life, mm -hmm. than you would otherwise. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. that's Absolutely. a very important strategy that you need to, a way to adapt some stuff from this book. That, uh, and the same thing for others, you know. Don't assume that they're jerks. Assume that they fall, fell into planning fallacy because that's much more likely to be the case mm -hmm. than they're simply mm -hmm. malevolent jerks who, you know, were trying to screw you. Wow. I, that's that's life-changing for, for me right there uh, because there are some people who I have seen are absolute jerks. Now I risk just <laughs> a planning fallacy. And so I've up my I've upgraded my level of thinking to understand uh, what has what is happening to them, and then subsequently what's happening in the relationship with with uh, with them. And uh, you know this is this is absolutely amazing when we talk about uh, the concept of of planning fallacy. You know they say um, uh, you you need to upgrade your thinking to a level where sometimes you go into a situation you don't know the questions to ask, and you're trying to hide. Let's say you're trying to hire someone, you're in management position or whatever, and if you don't know the questions to ask, if you don't know the language, the culture, the unique speak to that particular culture. Um, you're basically planning to fail. And so planning fallacy is upgrading your ability to plan, and you have a system, going back to our first interview, uh, uh, that uh, basically you can sit down and uh, put, and I believe it's called uh, uh, multiple attribute theory. I believe that's what it's called, but you'll correct me if, mm -hmm. I'm, if I'm not. But it's a system that you, is a, where you actually assign uh, a numerical value to these attributes so that you can plan uh, better, even though there might be some wiggle room there, but it's far more accurate than any other aspect or model uh, of planning. Can you, can you speak to that? Sure. So we mentioned, I mentioned a very brief version of it before when you're choosing which job to apply for. Uh, so you look at the various attributes of a decision. Let's say you're looking, thinking about who to hire, and uh, you think, okay, so let's hire, what kind of attributes do you want in your hiring? Let's say you want to hire someone you, who is a good fit for your organization, so you, you know, get along with them well, 
So, you know, won't break up, you know, team dynamics. You want somebody who's competent at the job. So you want to, you know, demonstrate competence in some way. You want somebody who has some experience in this field. And uh, let's say you want to make sure that they bring diversity to your team, however you define diversity. Then you have those four attributes. Then after you decide on those four attributes, you think about how important are, is each of those attributes. On a scale of one to 10, let's say oh, diversity you'll give, you know, from one being low to 10 being high, you want to, let's say, you give it a six. Let's say competence, you want to give it an eight. Uh, fit in your team, you want to give it a five. And uh, experience in the field, you, you, know, you can give it a four. And so you have now some numbers and how important they are. Then you rate each candidate on each of those numbers. So on each of those attributes, you know, let's say Bob is a six on competence, a seven on uh, uh, experience, a uh, three on fit, and uh, a eight on diversity. And then Susie, you also rate Susie on those things and, and so on. So you rate each person and then you multiply those things and I talk about it in more detail in the book so you can easily see it. It's a very quick, very easy thing, you know. Anyone who knows multiplication can do it. <laughs> and then you have some numbers for Bob, Susie, uh, Jackie, and so on, who you want to hire. So that's the first step. The next step is you want to see whether you are, you want to adjust some of these numbers for any of the fallacies that we have talked about. So, for mm -hmm. example, tribal. Uh, so, there's one of the fallacies called the halo and horns effect. Halo mm -hmm. effect refers to us experiencing a more positive evaluation, irrationally positive evaluation of somebody when we like some of their attributes. Let's say uh, Susie went to the same college as you did. Then you're likely unfairly evaluating her highly on other attributes like job competence and so on, and fitting for team. So unfairly, irrationally so. So then you want to correct for that. You want to give Susie actually lower scores after you think about, okay, am I falling into the scale effect? And let's say you go you know, the horns effect. Let's say um, Bob comes from a region of the country that causes Bob to have an accent that you don't like and doesn't appeal to you. And mm -hmm. so then you rate then you will tend to rate Bob less on effectiveness and so on, fit into the team. I don't know what Bob's fit into the team is going to be like just because of his accent. He might be mm -hmm. the greatest mm -hmm. player in the world, but you would tend to intuitively give him a lower rating. So then you need to correct for that in the numerical system. Now, then you can go into the false consensus effect, and you can see whether uh, that is something, in, whether you have the same opinions as other members of your team. Let's say the two of you are interviewing the person. It's always better to have two people interviewing that than one. And so you evaluate whether your opinion matches the opinion of the other people. Don't assume that your opinion will match the opinions of other people. So that's another uh, aspect. And then you go through uh, several other errors like planning fallacy. And each of those things, you can change the numbers as a result of each evaluation. And that's wonderful, because numbers are probably the best way of getting from intuitions, getting from the autopilot system into the intentional system, the mm -hmm. rational system, mm -hmm. using numbers. Numbers, the autopilot system doesn't do well with numbers. You know, we didn't really have numbers back in the Savannah. <laughs> right. You know? Right. So that's what I was saying. Well, this saber tooth bite me and eat me and kill me. Yeah. 
We didn't have time exactly. to make that as no, no. <laughs> exactly. So no, we completely didn't. So the numbers is a wonderful way of getting away from our gut intuitions, and a job hire is such a fraud place for intuition because you know we don't know this person at all, but we're using our savannah or brain to try to evaluate a person who we completely don't know. Our intuitions are to not trust strangers, mm-hmm. not to mm-hmm. trust people from our tribe. So our, we're just going to be off. There's a lot of research showing that job interviews tend to, if people aren't trained and prepared, they tend to be really off for mm-hmm. actually evaluating the quality of candidates. That's why using numbers is a great way of switching from this autopilot thinking to more intentional thinking and checking for these cognitive biases is going to be especially helpful for you to make sure that you don't hire the wrong person and that it itself is a form of minor disaster. <laughs> wow, this is great because they say numbers don't lie. So if you can measure it, you, you, this is where you can literally take, um, you know, all of these uh, uh, emotions, these biases, and you can uh, numerically uh, put, put, put yourself in a position that moves from system one to automatically to system two, and you're going to get the best result. And it's probably going to shock you if you can move yourself out of the way uh, long enough to, to go through the exercise and the process. Um, you're going to make far better decisions for uh, either the company you work for or for your own business if you're an entrepreneur. Uh, but this can also be applied in, in, in your relationship. This can be applied in buying a car. This can be applied to buying a home. Uh, you, I think you even used examples of relocating from, you know, uh, one city or state to an, to another. This really has uh, multiple applications. Absolutely. So any sort of decision making, any sort of significant decision, like uh, whether you're who you're hiring, like a home to which you're moving, up to you know which candidate you're voting for which church, if you go to church or a secular group or whatever, which club you want to belong to, whatever, big decisions, significant decisions, ones that will have some kind of impact on your life that you're making, this sort of process is something that you definitely want to go through to avoid disastrous decisions. And when I do consulting, like I said, you know, companies pay me hundreds of dollars an hour for this and you know, thousands of dollars to give a speech on this. This is the kind of process I go through with them. And I lead them through this sort of process where they can evaluate and make good decisions as a result of going through this process. Wow, absolutely amazing. Now, you also talk in the book, and it's really, again, this is, uh, I, I think I'm the poster child for selling this book, I swear to God. Um, you talk about PTSD can hijack the autopilot system, the system one thinking, and, and it makes it, uh, it, it makes our system one even more unreliable. Now it's already unreliable because of uh, it's it's you know it's that little part, it's the big part, it's the elephant if you will, and then you have but you now you have an elephant with PTSD. That's not a good thing. Mm-hmm. So yes. how yes. do you how do you uh, talk about taming the elephant? How do you tame that elephant if if you because, you know, we have, uh, unfortunately, we have a lot of um, people who suffer from uh, PTSD for, for various different reasons. Of course, the first thing that comes to mind is our veterans that are suffering mm-hmm. from it. 
Um, and uh, they come back and they unequivocally don't know how to tame uh, that system one level of thinking. And they, they engage in such maladaptive behaviors that even some of them end up committing suicide, which is, you know, in the, in the military yeah, is one of the horrible. highest rates. So this is very serious. This is not just, you know, um, I'm having a bad day. This is really life-threatening. So walk us through that a little bit, if you could, and connect the dots between PTSD and um, uh, our system one uh, thinking and, and how it makes it even more unreliable. Sure. So PTSD is just one of many mental health conditions that where our autopilot is even more destructive than it would otherwise be. For example, people with depression. People with depression feel excessively sad, and they feel that the whole world is bad, and things are really big problems, and that's, nothing is going well. These are often irrational thoughts. If you look at them, actually evaluate whether the world is all bad and things are going all wrong, that's not the case at all. The mm -hmm. same thing with post-traumatic stress disorder, uh, people are excessively sensitive, let's say, to veterans, to bullets, to explosions, to violence, and so on, much more than they would be otherwise. Uh, you know, they see scenes of violence on TV, and it shocks them, it scares them. They have a very strong fight-or-flight response in flight, meaning that they uh, want to flee, get away from the situation, or fight, they would want to express themselves in a violent way. So that's just one of many examples of post-traumatic stress disorder. Anxiety is something I suffer from. So I go see a therapist and take anti-anxiety medications because I have strong anxiety. Anxiety means that you feel agitated and oh, concerned, worried, afraid, excessively afraid of certain things in your environment. Mm -hmm. so, and that can result in either a fight response or a flight response. So flight response means that you kind of shut down, get away from things but when you have excessive worry and concern about them. My, my response is different. My response is fight. So I get excessively um, worked up, uh, excited or angry or frustrated about things that uh, I perceive as a threat in my mm -hmm. external environment. So those uh, all sorts of feelings are irrational. They're not to scale with the nature of the external threat or the stimulus of the PTSD or you know the, the state of the world with depression. These are all examples of where our autopilot system goes even more out of whack than mm -hmm. it would otherwise be. Mm -hmm. So well, it's an overreact or over-respond. Yes, exactly. It's mm -hmm. over-response with a fight-or-flight response. It over-responds. So, for people with depression, it over-responds by painting the world in an excessively negative light. Mm -hmm. PTSD makes people especially sensitive to whatever is the cause of their PTSD. People with anxiety it makes especially worried and concerned about uh, stimuli in the external world. So, in, and the interesting thing about that, not the interesting thing, but something that's really important to recognize is that people with PTSD, people with depression, people with anxiety, when they are in those episodes, they don't often recognize that they're in those episodes. I don't often don't recognize when I experience anxiety until after the anxious episode. People with depression, who, you know, many people don't have constant depression, but they uh, experience when they look at themselves back when they were during a, a certain 
period of depression, let's say, you know, they were there to depress several hours where the world seemed all bleak. They don't remember what their thinking is like. People with mm-hmm. PTSD, they don't really remember what their thinking is like. I, with my anxiety, I don't remember what my thinking is like. It feels very different when you're inside that state than when you're outside of it. And the, the mm-hmm. difference can be, you know, as short as, you know, half an hour. You know, I don't remember what the anxious state was like and what my experience was. And so don't other people. So we just feel that state as something very natural, something very intuitive. This is what our gut is telling us the world is like, and therefore the world is like this. Mm-hmm. People with depression mm-hmm. see the world as all bleak and so on. And uh, this is something that we need to particularly remember if we are ourselves happen to suffer from a mental health condition, or if we're going engaging with others or suffering from mental health conditions that they are going to have especially strong autopilot reactions that are going to be especially out of whack with the world. And this is a particularly important time to rely on the intentional system, the strategies of an intentional system as described in the book. This is Mm -hmm. especially, especially important to do so when you know that you yourself are dealing with either you yourself or you, someone you're interacting with is dealing with a mental health condition. Wow, that's incredible. And of course, I need to say that you, you know, if you're, if you're not getting professional help, consider it. I guess I'm getting professional help and I really appreciate mm-hmm. it. So if you're not, uh, and, you know, I recommend that you at least talk to a therapist and see if it would be helpful for you. I, you know, I so appreciate your, your honesty and, and being candid about that because uh, um, we kind of also go back into that that assumption that well well if I if I just you know learn uh, a decision making theory uh, then I'll be okay but no there might be something uh, um, above that that might be clouding uh, and even overriding or even tainting even more your system one level of thinking and so you might learn how to intentionally think but you still have a mental illness. And so that is very, very important to make those two distinctions uh, and, and to separate that out. So I really appreciate that. Absolutely. If you have a mental uh, illness, like I do, it is quite, quite important to get professional help. The things I'm talking about in this book are not primarily meant uh, to address mental illness. They do help. So they just certainly help me with my mental illness. My wife suffers from anxiety and depression, and they help her, of course. So you're going to be much better able to work with a therapist if you know these strategies, because then you know how your mind works and how to help your therapist and psychiatrist guide you. So that helps. But this is mainly meant for people who are mentally healthy and who want to work out their mind and make much better decisions to improve their lives. You know, the people who bought houses in 2007 they weren't mentally ill. <laughs> the Wells Fargo leadership, they weren't mentally ill. You know, the people who are getting divorces, they weren't mentally ill. They are just uh, leading, leading their ordinary lives, not knowing how to make better decisions. And this is who the book is written for, the everyday, wow. ordinary person who wants to make better decisions. Incredible distinction. Thank you for that. Uh, you talk about the information diet. Um, is this kind of like information overload? Or what does that mean? What is information? Sure. So information bias is uh, also, people know it by the colloquial term, anal- paralysis by analysis. So where we tend mm. to look for 
more, more and more and more information when it doesn't matter for making our decisions. Uh, this is an interesting phenomenon. Information re about reality is only useful to the point that it influences our decisions. You know, why would you seek more information than you need? You know, if you're looking for information about which job that you're going to get, and you, we talked about the decision-making criteria, you care about what kind of boss you have, what kind of pay you have, and uh, what kind of uh, social environment the company is in. And mm -hmm. why do you care what kind of food is in the cafeteria? You know, <laughs> like mm -hmm. that, that doesn't mm -hmm. matter for your decision making. Don't look for that information because that's that's not going to be helpful for you unless you choose to make it part of your decision making criteria. I know very few people who are going to make a decision about which job to work at based on the kind of food in the cafeteria. <laughs> so you know, don't look for that information. It's not going to be important. It's not going to be helpful. Look for only the information that's going to help you make the decision that you want to make. When you're looking at candidates, you know, looking for another example, political candidates, look for information that will help you make a decision about who to vote for. Don't look for their life histories and so on if it doesn't matter for you. Look for the things that will cause you to make a different decision on any criteria that you choose. If it's not within the your criteria system, either include it or don't look for it because it doesn't matter. So this is the information bias where people tend to look for information that doesn't actually matter for their decisions. The only information, unless you're, I mean, again, unless you're doing it for fun, you know, you want to entertain yourself by reading a book about, you know, ancient history, that's great, that's awesome, I really support that. But, uh, you know, don't let it, within the context of decision making about substantial decisions, about anything that you're trying to do, don't let extraneous information distract you from what really matters. Wow. Excellent, excellent. Uh, the anchoring uh, bias. What is the anchoring bias? Yes, yeah, so that's a really interesting phenomenon where the first thing we learn about something is going to really influence the rest of our thoughts about it. It's often the case that uh, marketers who, who are trying to persuade us about something will give us certain information at the forefront of our decision-making in order to anchor us in that information and so that we perceive the rest of, of that information through a certain filter. Let's say uh, we think of, you're thinking about buying a washing machine and uh, the first thing you hear about it from a commercial is that, oh, you know, here's a washing machine for $800. Then your initial thought on buying washing machines is that they cost $800. That's the, that's the quote unquote appropriate price for them. And then when you come to the store and they say, there's a washing machine for $700. You'll think, oh, what a deal. That's awesome. I am, you know, this is not $800. This is $700. That's great. Let me buy this washing machine. You know, and in another store, it might cost 500 or something like that. But uh, you're already uh, scooped in by that first information that you heard, and mm -hmm. you interpret the rest of the information through that. So uh, people, this is how it works in marketing. It can work the same way in politics. If uh, you hear the, if the first thing you hear about a candidate is that, oh, you know, they're a horrible person because they cheated on their husband or something like that. Well, it might not be completely relevant. It might not be at all relevant whether uh, they cheated on their husband or they didn't. It might not be factual whether they cheated on their husband or they didn't. But you will still be thinking of that candidate as the first thing you heard about them. Oh, it's a candidate who I heard was cheating on their husband, you know. So, again, this is 
something that biases us, something that anchors us to the first piece of information we hear about something. Wow. This is why marketers try to really get to us first with any information to make sure that we interpret their product, whether it's a political campaign, whether it's a you know, thing for us to buy uh, through their initial lens. That's why so much money is being spent on advertising to get to us because that's how we interpret information. The first information we hear is going to be the most crucial information. Wow, the anchor. That makes all the sense in the world. How does that, how does the uh, uh, anchoring uh, or how, or, or, or even is this connected to uh, what I thought was fascinating, the, uh, is it called the Dunning-Kruger effect? Mm-hmm. Yes. So the Dunning-Kruger effect, sure. Uh, so the Dunning-Kruger effect is another interesting one. So the Dunning-Kruger effect is a phenomenon where if we know a little bit about a topic, we tend to really overestimate our ability in that area. And when we learn more and more about a topic, we tend to become less confident about our knowledge. You know, uh, if you've ever heard someone saying that, you know, the more, I to- the more I know about a topic, the more I recognize how I don't know, how much mm-hmm. I don't know, that's, mm-hmm. that's the phenomenon of Dunning-Kruger at work. So uh, people who, le- let's say, people who learn a little bit about being auto mechanics and they learn about a car, they're like, oh, I can take, fix this problem with, you know, no problem. Uh, you know, that's, that's, I can fix this problem easily. And they really can't. They're really overconfident about their ability. But they go into, you know, fixing their car, and then they screw it up, and, you know, then their car mechanic has to <laughs> really actually fix the problem. Um, another example, my uh, wife uh, colors her hair. So she talks about how her hair color is, makes an especially large amount of money on people who try to color their own hair. And they screw it up because they learn a little bit about hair coloring and then they go like, oh, I can do this myself. You know, sure. and then they and then they do their hair and they screw it up and then they have to go to the professional who you know fix it for them. And the professional makes a lot more money per hour. I mean they charge uh, on these people than people who just come to them and say, can, can you do my hair? Because they have to fix a lot of things. And this applies, you know, to another area of life, let's say um, financial investment. So people who are amateur stockbrokers, oh, this is a good one. Uh, there was a study conducted uh, by um, Bear Stearns, I believe, uh, which found that the people, if it's, uh, it's evaluated the stock portfolios of all the people in holdings who held stocks in Bear Stearns, who were investing through Bear Stearns, and it found that the people who made the most money over something like 20 years were the people who were dead. So these were the accounts of dead people. And why? Well, because they didn't trade. They didn't uh, try to catch the market. Wow. People who are alive are much more likely to be trading and to try to catch the market. And uh, they are way too overconfident about their ability to time the market uh, because People who are much better and expert traders, they time the market, and they can do that. But people who are just amateurs who do that in their hobby time, no, no, just just don't. Just no, stop. Don't. Wow, You're not going to out-trade the traders. You're not going to out-trade the expert traders who, have it, who do it professionally. You're not going to time the market. So <laughs> your best bet is just to invest and just let, you know, hold. Don't do anything to the money. 
or you wow. know, invested with a professional mutual fund or something like that, or ETF. So that's another example of where uh, the Dunning-Kruger effect really causes us to make bad, bad decisions. That is that is excellent. That was a great study. Okay, thank you for sharing that. Now, another one that really fascinated me in the book uh, was the backfire effect. Mm-hmm. I was like, whoa, because I, again, uh, ladies and gentlemen, you're going to see yourself in the data. You're going to see yourself in the book, and you're going to see others uh, and be able to say, oh, that's exactly what so-and-so did or this group did. They absolutely, because uh, you're saying, well, wait a minute, you, you know, you, here are all the facts. We know in our political arena, we, always, we, we have a new word uh, that's in the dictionary called alternative facts. Right, so what the hell is an alternative fact? Uh, and there are people who, uh, with all of the uh, evidence uh, in front of them, uh, literally suffer from the backfire effect. Walk us through that. Yeah, so this is a really interesting phenomenon, which also surprised me when I first found out about it and upset me, that uh, people who are presented with evidence there are a number of people, well, actually a large majority, a majority of people, who are, when presented with evidence that goes against their gut reaction, their intuitions, they, because they feel discomfort about that evidence, they feel that it doesn't go with their preferences, they reject it as false and don't change their minds, or even in some cases hold more strongly to their previous opinions. So, for example, if uh, somebody uh, is asked, you know, what's, your opinion on whether uh, whether human beings had a significant role in the climate climate change uh, on a scale of one to six, where one indicates that human beings had a stronger influence in climate changing, and uh, ten indicates that human beings have absolutely no role in climate change. And somebody says, "Well, I'm a seven, uh, so much closer to humans have no role in climate change." And then they're presented with strong scientific evidence that shows that, yes, human beings have had a really big role in changing the climate and so on. And then they can, they're asked this question again, and, uh, you know, they can say, well, now I'm an eight. And you're like, what? You just have very clear evidence that, uh, you know, climate change is caused by human beings. So what's happening? Well, what's happening to that person is feeling defensive about their opinion about their tribal belonging, the tribe to which they feel affiliation, a tribe which associates certain ideological positions with climate change denial. And so now they are holding more strongly to their previous opinion. And that's one example of the backfire effect. Here's an interesting study. That's one way that the backfire effect might work. Another way that the backfire effect might work is through memory change. So you know those uh, articles journalists published saying, you know, here are the top 10 myths about uh, vaccines or something like that. Top 10 mm-hmm. myths about, you know, two brushing your teeth, I don't know. And uh, then they list those myths and they list corrections of the myths under each myth. Well, research evaluated that sort of way of presenting information and it actually found that when presented immediately with those myths and people had a, correct, had a more correct understanding of reality after immediately, shortly after they had this information, but over time, they actually slipped back and they began to believe in those myths more than they did before reading the articles. And that seems very weird. Why would that happen? 
Well, it seems that that happens because partially because of the anchoring effect, because the myths were presented first, and that in, and people tend to remember and interpret the rest of the information for those through that initial information about the myth, and they tend to forget the correction. So the myth in the memory, just the way that our memory works, tends to overpower the corrective information if the myth is presented first and then the corrective information is presented second. So in reality, if journalists were, you know, know this information and actually want to correct it, and I talk about this quite a bit in my uh, interviews and appearances, about media criticism, what they should do in those sorts of articles is present the correct information first and then the myth second. Just have the accurate information, then the myth. Accurate information, then the myth. That would be a much more effective way of presenting information. Unfortunately, it's not the way that journalists currently do it. So it's another way that the backfire effect works is by changing our memory and messing with our memory in problematic ways. Wow, that is fascinating. And again, you, you know, the moment that you are aware of it, you'll see yourself in this data. Um, probabilistic thinking, uh, what does that term mean? So probabilistic thinking is essentially it's about applying numbers to our world. We, as human beings, one of the ways that our gut reactions cause us to make bad decisions and fail to evaluate reality accurately is by painting the world in black or white. Is this true or not? Is this uh, real or not? You know, do I like this or do I not like this? So our world is naturally, in the Savannah environment, we couldn't spend time, as Philippe was saying, or evaluating on a scale of one to 10 whether the saber-toothed tiger is going to eat us. <laughs> you know, we're like, no, you know, I need to get myself out of here. So that was good for the Savannah environment. Unfortunately, in the real world, this is not how it works. You know, if you're interacting with your boss, and your boss is giving you some, uh, you know, feedback on your performance. What's the likelihood that your boss wants you to succeed versus likelihood that your boss wants you to fail versus, you know, uh, so you have to evaluate that. You can't just say absolutely this or absolutely that. It's not a black or white situation. What about your colleagues? You know, uh, when you're interacting with them, do you, do they want to work with you collaboratively or do, are they just seeking advantage for themselves? You know, how do you value that? You know, do you think mm -hmm. yes or no on each of these things? That's a really problematic way of thinking about this. In reality, it's much more effective to think about the world in probabilistic uh, settings. So let's say you ask that question about your boss. Uh, is your boss trying to help you or hurt you? You know, just a very basic thing. And you say, you know, hurt you at 0% and help you at 100%. Let's, you know, let's have that scale. Or um, we can use the scale of one to ten. So zero, your your boss is trying to hurt you, and ten, your boss is trying to help you. And you plant yourself at a five, just like as a basic thing, because you don't know where it's going to go. And then each piece of evidence that you see causes you to move up or down. Let's say your boss uh, you know, says a nice thing about your performance in front of other people. That's an indication that your boss is trying to help you. So you move that up to a six. And then let's say your boss, uh, you know, scolds you for doing something that uh, you thought you actually did well. And you move that down to, you know, a, from a six to a four because you think, well, I did that really well. How could she scold me for that? And so on. And then you evaluate over time where you're landing and where your position is. 
Same thing with your business colleagues, same thing with politicians that you're evaluating, with your spouse, with your friends, with your community, with your church or secular group or so on. You have to evaluate all of them, not on a binary scale, not on a scale of yes or no, but on a probabilistic thinking scale. What is the probability that your boss is trying to help you? What is the probability that your boss is trying to hurt you? What is the probability that your colleague is, you know, collaborating with you to gain advantage for himself and then backstab you or in order to actually help you, you know, because she's nice and wants to be helpful and work together and so on. So each of these questions is much more effectively evaluated on a probabilistic scale where each piece of evidence to one or the other influence effect can move you up or down on a certain scale. And you can do one to 10, you can do zero to 100, you know, Many people are comfortable with doing it in percentage terms, which is why it's called probabilistic thinking with probabilities, which are usually mm -hmm. in percentage terms. But you can do whatever you want and however you want it. But the crucial thing is that you don't want to paint your world in black or white when you're trying to evaluate reality because, in, you know, you can't read your boss's mind or your colleague's mind. Our, mind, our world right now is so much more complex than the world of the Savannah, which was much more black and white. You, know, you can rely that your tribal members, they need your cooperation. You know, if you were not part of the tribe, the whole tribe would suffer, basically. So mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They, they want you as part of the tribe. Whereas, you know, if you're fired from a company, I'll just find somebody else. <laughs> so mm -hmm. that's a, mm -hmm. a much, much more different situation uh, in the current world. So in the current world, our intuition of black and white is just not suited for where we are. It's all about shades of gray. This is the modern world, and it's all about probabilistic thinking. Uh, now, can you explain, Bea, I think, uh, if I can pronounce it correctly, uh, Bayesian probability? Sure. So Bayesianism, uh, so that's the term, Bayesian probability, is the basic principle behind probabilistic thinking. It's a more, co it's a more complex mathematical expression of it, which you don't need to go into unless you like math. But basically, Bayesian probability, Bayesian thinking, so probabilistic thinking, talks about evaluating things based on prior presumptions. So you can so let's say you know you have a black and you have a situation where you know something about where your boss is, mm -hmm. and uh, so you're not actually going to start at five. Let's say you're going to start at a seven, and then you move up and down with additional evidence. Many people make an error by failing to take into account where they currently are, what their evaluation of reality currently is. They think of it, again, from the black and white perspective, you know, it's either black or white. It's not actually going to be black or white. You want to find which shade of gray it's actually on. Let's say you have a, let's go to politics. Let's say you have a favorite political leader, you know, and then, you know, you want to think about which, you know, you're not going to start with a five with a political leader where you evaluate how much you support that leader. You're going to start, let's say, with a seven or an eight. Or if you use probabilities, you know, there's an 80% probability that I'll vote for this leader in the next election. And then you see how that leader performs, and then you increase or lower that probability. And if it goes below 50%, obviously, you know, you're not going to vote for that leader. If mm -hmm. it keeps, if it goes, if it's above 50%, you'll vote for that leader. And, you know, you can do the same thing with uh, leaving your job or starting a new job, starting a job search. If your evaluation of your um, 
ability to succeed at this job goes below 50%, then you want to start you know, looking for a new job and so on. So you want to, the Bayesianism speaks of looking at your prior evaluation of reality, where it is right now, and letting new evidence shift you based on the strength and the weight of this new evidence and how it works for you. Excellent, excellent. So, um, attentional uh, bias. Uh, I saw that pop up quite a few times in mm -hmm. uh, the book uh, that we, uh, a lot of us suffer from. Speak to us about what is an attentional uh, uh, bias, which is held with an A. Yes, so attentional bias. It's about attention. So, our gut intuitions tend to focus our attention on what is most emotionally salient, on what is strongest for our emotions. Mm -hmm. And that, of course, makes sense in the savannah where we want the, the, to survive and thrive, you know, to survive and, you know, we wanted to pay attention to the saber-toothed tiger or the snake. Uh, we, you know, we want to pay a lot of attention to it. In our tribal environments, I mentioned about tribes, we wanted to pay a lot of attention to when our tribal members were criticizing us because that meant a significant threat to our status within the tribe. Our tribe was everything. So when we felt when our tribal members were saying nasty things about us, or, you know, however they were expressing it in the savannah, we wanted to pay a lot of attention to it because that was going to be really problematic for our survival if we couldn't rely on our tribal members. And, and all of these things are about emotional salience. So attentional bias focuses our attention on what's emotionally salient. And here are some examples of where it can lead us strong. An example is air flying. People see horrific disasters of airline, of airplanes on TV, and they get scared of flying. Now that's a really irrational fear. If you look at, if you compare flying to car accidents, likelihood of being killed in a car per mile versus being killed in an airplane per mile, you're about a thousand times less likely, or yeah, something like a thousand times less likely to be killed in a car, uh, in an airplane per mile than in a car per mile. Mm -hmm. Because we don't see those disastrous car accidents, so we're, you, our emotions are causing us to be really afraid of airplanes because we associate them with disastrous accidents simply because those disastrous accidents is what's in the media. That's what the media shows us. So that's an example of where attentional bias is going to lead us in a really bad direction. Here's another example. Let's say you're uh, in the previous house where you lived, you had really bad neighbors with barking dogs. That will cause you to strongly overweigh the importance of making sure that you don't have barking dogs uh, with bad neighbors in your next house and will cause you to ignore many other things that can be much more important about your house, like whether it passes the safety inspection mm -hmm. and you know whether there's a train right nearby that makes really loud noise instead of a dog, something like that. So that will cause you to make really bad decisions uh, because your attention will be on the wrong thing. Or let's say with the previous, uh, Let's say going to a job. Uh, you had some colleagues who were uh, really nasty to you in the job, you know, in your office. 
and so and because you were surrounded by cubicles. So you're really focusing on the next job that you're going to get. You'll make sure that it has a you know you you're in an office and there's no not going to be anybody around you. You will tend to much more strongly overweigh that criteria of a job search than is actually beneficial for you for the all the goals that you seek. So the attention, whatever you focus your attention on, will seem much more important to you than it is right than it actually is. So that's a very big danger of attentional bias. Focusing wow. your attention on something that's emotionally salient will cause you to irrationally evaluate its importance. It causes you to really think that it's very important, whereas it's actually much less important than it actually is. Is there a connection to attentional bias, uh, 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 attentional bias to like uh, the mirror exposure effect that you talked about? So not so much. The mirror exposure effect relates more to uh, the fact that so the mean exposure effect, let me clarify that for folks. So the mean exposure effect is the fact that when we get exposed to something, we have a strong, we tend to have a, to something new, novel, something new. We tend to have a strong reaction to it. Strong, you know, this is a new stimulus. We are trained, our brains and from the savanna are trained to respond strongly to novelty because novelty tended to be a threat in the savanna environment. Also an opportunity, so which is good, but um, we can talk about the, the opportunity versus threat dynamic next. But we are strongly trained to pay attention to novelty. So when we look at something that's new, we are really recognizing it. We focus a lot of our attention on something that's new. And that doesn't have to be necessarily be as emotionally salient, which is different mm -hmm. when it's about attention. So when something is new, we focus a lot of attention on it and we look at it, we examine it. Now, when we are exposed to something again, it's much less interesting to us. Uh, think about uh, when you watched a movie for the first time. That was really interesting. You know, you saw it, there was a scene and so on. Um, you had the story, the narrative. When you watch it again, it's much less interesting, you know. Uh, so there's much less fascination with it. There's much less novelty. Or when you go to a vacation to a new place, you know, there's much more novelty when you go to it the first time than when you go to it the second time. Uh -huh. So the mere exposure effect, the more times you're exposed to something, the less novel it seems, the less of a strong reaction we have. Now, the trick about that is that the less of a strong reaction we have to it, the more comfortable we are with it. And so the more comfortable we are with it, the more we will like it, usually. So that's a way that somebody can sell us. The marketers really use this a lot in advertising. They, that's why they have commercials which are repetitive. They repeat and repeat and repeat, and we get more comfort with that commercial, and we associate it with like, oh yes, this commercial must be accurate because it repeats a lot. Now, if you think about it you know, rationally, no, of course not. Just because something is repeated a lot doesn't mean it's true, doesn't mean it's accurate. But, you know, have you heard the phrase of, you know, uh, you repeat a lie often enough and uh, people start to believe it. Well, that's, that's how this works. Mm -hmm, uh, so mm -hmm. the mere exposure effect, of the subcomponent of that relating to falsehood is called the loser kill effect. It's a subcomponent of the mere exposure effect. So where mm. lies become perceived as truth just because they're repeated often enough. The mere exposure effect overall refers to something becoming more and more comfortable and familiar, the more we're exposed to it. You know, for example, if you're if you've taken the same role
Hello? Did I lose you? I think I lost you, uh, Glenn.